Hello and welcome to my brand new podcast, Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. The majority of Australians believe in climate change and want to take action. However, it is a wicked problem that is overly complicated, with the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to empower through education and give voice to those who can lead the way. My grandfather was Bob Hawke, one of Australia's great environmental leaders. He once told me that he had a fundamental belief that ignorance is the enemy of good policy. Well, I believe that ignorance is also the enemy of good choices. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, we bring you the experts and present you information, facts and some interesting ideas. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. In today's episode, we'll be talking about Antarctica and its role in our climate's past, present and future. December 1st marked the 60th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty, which is the foundation for how Antarctica is governed and protected. Antarctica is one of the world's last great wildernesses. Its name alone conjures images of a pristine and magical place of exploration and wildlife. However, it is safe to say that not many people fully appreciate the importance of Antarctica as the powerhouse of our global climate and its biodiversity. At my grandfather's memorial, I paid tribute to his legacy as an environmental leader. I told the story of his role in ensuring that Antarctica remains a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. Of all the things said about Bob these past weeks, there is one story that to me speaks to the legacy that is most relevant to the future of Australia. For both what was achieved and what is possible. In, 19, in 1989, Bob was handed some cabinet papers requesting Australia's support to open Antarctica to mining. He was horrified. But he was told that years of international negotiations could not be unwound. It was a done deal. Bugger that, he said. Refusing to sign, Bob courted the world with an ideal for something greater, better and fairer. Enlisting global eco-champion Jacques Cousteau, the Hawke-Keating government determinedly set about changing the world's mind. And they did. In 1991, the Madrid Protocol was executed, making the last great wilderness on Earth a place devoted to peace and to science protected from exploitation. Now that, folks, is legacy. It is this legacy that gives me great pride in being appointed to the board of the Antarctic Science Foundation, whose purpose is to protect and understand the planet through investing in Antarctic science. It is a position which provides me the opportunity to follow in my grandfather's footsteps and continue the good fight. My grandfather fundamentally believed in and respected science, and he recognised the critical importance of the science that is done in Antarctica. So today we look to that science. 
To learn about the importance of the great southern continent, today we talk to Dr Tony Press. Tony was the director of the Australian Antarctic Division for 10 years and is one of the most versed Australians on the politics and science of Antarctica. Tony is also my fellow board member of the Antarctic Science Foundation. Tony, welcome and thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. So, as a heads up to our guests, we're going to be getting into the science today. But it's really important stuff and we have promised you to bring you the science and the experts on this show so they can break down the big issues for us. So, here goes. To get us started, Tony, in a nutshell, why is Antarctica so important from a climate perspective and why is its protection just so critical? Well, Antarctica is a huge continent covered in ice and it's surrounded by ocean, which means that it stays cold relative uh, to the rest of the planet. And that interaction between the coldness of Antarctica and the surrounding ocean means that Antarctica, in fact, drives the global climate through the currents it produces um, in Antarctica, around Antarctica, and that then leave Antarctica into the three major continental oceans. Those currents take cold water around the world and bring water back to Antarctica over thousands of years. And that engine room, that conveyor belt of marine water is the major force in shaping global climate. So that speaks to why Antarctica drives our present climate. But in a recent article, you wrote that you call her the keeper of secrets. Just what did you mean by that? Well, Antarctica is the keeper of secrets because it holds a very detailed record of our climate past. In the ice that's gathered on the continent over millions and millions of years, and that is up to four kilometres thick on the Antarctic continent, that ice holds a very detailed picture of climate way back more than a million years. When snow falls on Antarctica, it traps air as it hits the surface. As more snow falls, it traps more air. And as the snow builds up on top of those layers, that air gets compressed into the ice and forms minute bubbles in the ice that covers the continent of Antarctica. So the oldest ice is probably over a million years old. And that's a time when the global climate cycles, the major geological and climate cycles that go, that go uh, from warm to cold over tens of thousands of years, over a million years ago, that was changing from very cold to warm in about a 40,000-year period. In modern times, in the last 800,000 years or so, that period is about 100,000 to 120, 130,000 years. So the climate back when it was fluctuating in those 40,000-year periods was probably very different to the climate that exists today. So understanding that past climate 
can tell us clues about what our future climate might be. So what I'm hearing here is that the science and the data that we see in those historical records that underpin our climate models is dependent on ice core research. Is this true? Yes, uh, the ice cores um, do two things. They, they tell us about the past climate. For, for instance, in, in, in some of the uh, high snowfall areas um, around the coast of Ant- Antarctica, you can find in those ice cores evidence of the uh, first smelting uh, of lead, or you can see the signature of volcanic eruptions. Uh, you can see the testing of, of nuclear weapons. So these ice cores have a very detailed uh, history of our past. And using that history, going back uh, as we've gone so far, over 800,000 years, using uh, the detailed atmospheric record, we can tie those ice cores to events that we know from other records. So the, the ice cores are very detailed and you can tie them to other geological or, or other uh, paleontological records uh, about our past climate. So, Tony, aside from her role as storyteller of the past, you also say she can predict the future. Just how so? Well, in the detailed climate records, we can see the build-up of greenhouse gases in those long climate cycles, 100,000-year climate cycles. And we can see the relationship between the changes in greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide and methane, and temperature. And we, and we can overlay the greenhouse gas records with the temperature records and see how those rates of, of change of temperature are associated with the rates of change of greenhouse gases. How that helps us predict the future is we can look now at the rate of change of greenhouse gases, things like carbon dioxide or methane in the atmosphere, and then see where in the past there has been rates of change similar to uh, our current greenhouse gas um, trajectory. And from that, we know that we are actually in a period that's unprecedented. The rate of change of uh, atmospheric uh, increases in atmospheric um, carbon dioxide and methane are so vastly different from the natural changes that have occurred in the past. So that is actually a lovely segue to my next question. Can you tell me a little bit about what changes we're already starting to see and why these are so important? So in Antarctica at the moment, uh, we can see directly um, those things that are being driven by current climate change. We can see changes in uh, ocean temperature and the warming of the surface ocean is starting to have a direct effect on the melting of glacial ice on the coast of Antarctica. That in itself has a direct effect on the rate of change in sea level. And so over the last couple of decades, the contribution to global sea level change, the rise in global sea level from Antarctica has increased and 
is increasing at an increasing rate. So that's driven uh, principally, um, the Antarctic component is driven principally uh, by the warming of the oceans. The other effects we've seen uh, are changes in uh, temperatures vertically in the ocean, uh, changes in the production of deep bottom water. This deep bottom water is the water that drives the global climate, the global ocean uh, currents uh, and consequential climate effects around the world. Uh, and those changes are really quite significant. If, if you would have asked an oceanographer um, 20, well, 30 years ago or 40 years ago whether the oceans were stable or not, uh, they would have said, yes, the oceans are, are quite stable. But what we've learnt from the last 20, 30 years of research in Antarctica is the oceans can change very rapidly uh, and in ways that we never imagined. There are also changes in the chemical composition of the ocean. Uh, the oceans are acidifying. That means that they're absorbing carbon dioxide and becoming more acidic. And that has direct effects on organisms that produce shells. Uh, and there's a fair bit of research that's been done that shows that some species will not be able to survive in uh, oceans that continue uh, to acidify, acidify. And this will manifest itself uh, in, in the Antarctic as well as the rest of the world, say, with coral reefs. And the second part of the chemistry of the ocean that's changing is that it's actually losing oxygen. And that is critically important for marine life around the world. Well, Tony, we'll definitely have to do another episode on ocean science and krill, but that is a discussion for another day. So moving on, this might sound like a stupid question, but we don't believe in stupid questions here because sometimes experts assume a different base level of knowledge. So... The stupid question of the day, how does simply understanding Antarctica help us save it or assist in preventing climate change? Isn't the, the factors that are driving the change that we should be looking at and preventing? Uh, and is this science for science's sake or is there a greater need and purpose? Uh, you can't separate uh, the science that's being done in Antarctica from the global understanding of what's happening with climate change or uh, how the planet will survive well into the future. So Antarctica is an integral part of our global understanding. In that sense, it certainly isn't science for science sake. It's science that tells us about our future. And it can point us in the right direction about the things uh, that we need to understand uh, and do. So we need to understand the trajectory of climate change, uh, how quickly it might evolve and what the consequences of that are. And I'll come back to that in a minute, particularly about Australia, because there's some really interesting things that Antarctica can tell you about Australia. But it also points us towards 
um, the causes of climate change. So we know uh, that atmospheric carbon dioxide being absorbed uh, by the oceans, uh, and, in, and in particular the Southern Ocean absorbs 30% of, of, of global carbon uh, dioxide in the atmosphere, at least the ocean component of, what, of what's absorbed. So we know from our science that somewhere along the line, we will have to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or these effects will accelerate, uh, increase and become critical. We know uh, also uh, from this science that there will be changes to ecosystems. That means there'll be changes to food security around the world. We need to understand what these changes are well in advance so that we can adapt uh, to those changes uh, and put in place um, differences in the way that we manage the marine environment uh, in order to make sure uh, that we are secure for um, food uh, into our future. Just coming back to Australia, we know from the ice core record that there are very close links between what happens in Antarctica and the, the climate in some of our most important food-producing areas. We can see relationships in Antarctica from the ice core records to droughts uh, and floods uh, and significant climate events uh, in Australia. For instance, there is a very strong correlation between snowfall uh, at a place called Law Dome, which is south of Perth in Antarctica, on the coast of Antarctica, and rainfall in southwestern Western Australia. It's a very, very tight relationship. When it snows heavily down there in Antarctica, it's very, very dry in the southwest of Western Australia. And looking at the ice core records, we can see that the past 15, 20 years of dryness in southwestern Western Australia is unprecedented in the last thousand years because from the ice core records, we can show uh, that that relationship between rainfall and snowfall in, in, uh, in the Antarctic is very tight. So rather than being science for science sake, it's actually science that tells us about our own country uh, and the kinds of things that are happening now in our country. Switching from science to the politics, Antarctica belongs to no one, but obviously there's a lot of global interest. Given its proximity to Australia and its influence on our regional climate, it makes logical sense for Australia to have an interest, but Antarctica commands global attention. Are you able to explain to us why there is so much focus on what is a relatively uninhabitable place that is just so far away? Antarctica is a very remote, fascinating and appealing place. And even though there are now only 29 countries in the Antarctic that are actively doing research in Antarctica, there are uh, 
50 countries that have signed up to the Antarctic Treaty, and that will increase. One of the reasons it'll increase is that many countries are now interested and understand that Antarctica can tell them and the globe about climate change. So there is a a new and emerging interest in Antarctica because of climate change. When the Antarctic Treaty was negotiated uh, in the late 1950s, there were 12 countries. And as I said uh, just then, there are now 50 or so countries that have signed the Antarctic Treaty. Those countries have done so for, for, for two or maybe three reasons. The first uh, is a commitment to the protection of Antarctica. The second is, for many of them, an active interest in the science uh, that can be conducted in Antarctica. The third reason, uh, which is probably a little bit more nationalistic, is that many countries want to participate in a regional agreement that is seen to be an important regional agreement. That in itself is not a bad thing, uh, and it means that Antarctica now has uh, over 80% of the global population as adherents to the Antarctic Treaty. Now for another tangent, and sorry I'm all over the place, but I've had the pleasure of travelling to Antarctica there myself, and it was possibly one of the most inspiring events in my life. I personally came away with this deep-rooted respect and almost a reverence for the environment, which I'd never really had before, or at least not to to that extent. Almost everyone who's been there is a convert, but inevitably fails to convey the true experience when they come home. Do you have any idea about why that is? I think it is so grand and majestic that it's very difficult to put in words. Even the photographs that you take when you're there don't convey that connection between the heart and the eyes, which is something that you get uh, when you when you go um, to Antarctica. Particularly if you get the chance to stand there on your own and just absorb it. I took down a government minister um, quite some time ago and took that person for a for a walk out beyond the end of the airstrip, the Wilkins Aerodrome runway in Antarctica, left them there on their own for about 15 minutes just to meditate on Antarctica. And you could tell that they were deeply moved by the experience. And when you get a chance to do that yourself, you also are deeply moved. It is a, its magnificence is overwhelming. 
I mean, for such an overwhelmingly beautiful place, today's conversation might be a bit challenging uh, for those who can understand the, the threats to Antarctica. Listening to this might make one feel rather powerless. I mean, we're talking about trends and cycles and forces of change that are long and slow moving, and it's taking all of humanity to shift the power of nature in the wrong direction. We are also talking about a place that is very, very far away and out of range for most people, both physically, in terms of they they may not ever go there, but also in terms of how they can personally influence the outcomes there. So is there anything our listeners can actually do to help protect Antarctica, knowing how important it is to do so? Yes, I, th- I think uh, there are a number of things that, that individuals can do. I think they can alert their local politicians to the importance of Antarctica. They can alert their local politicians to the changes that humankind is making to the planet and to Antarctica. And they can encourage their local politicians to become engaged in those discussions and to learn about Antarctica and to shape future policy that will protect Antarctica and protect the planet. If we don't protect Antarctica, we can't protect the planet. I'm very optimistic about this. I think people are ultimately good in their hearts and good in their intentions. And I think there's plenty of scope for us to take action and to take action in a timely manner to protect Antarctica and to protect our planet from its biggest threat. And its biggest threat is climate change. People can, if they have the skills and, and the ability, they can become involved in Antarctic research or Antarctic conservation. They can also contribute to Antarctic science indirectly by helping fund research, helping fund the kinds of key science that needs to be undertaken in order to understand Antarctica and to protect our planet. They can do it, for instance, through the Antarctic Science Foundation, or they can do it through uh, their direct contributions to taxation uh, and uh, university. So in the year where Oxford Dictionaries has claimed climate emergency as its 2019 word of the year, at this point in time, what gives you hope that we can get this right? I think that if you get away from the headlines and you get away uh, from what has become, at least in our country and, and a couple of other countries, a terribly acrimonious a political discussion about something that is not political. This is about science. If you get away from those headlines and, and, and that acrimony, there is, in fact, a lot of good out there in the world and a lot of scope for action. So science, which is where I come from, or policy, which is also where I come from, 
combining those two uh, for a hopeful future uh, is something that citizens can be involved in. And I think uh, there's a growing momentum uh, on our planet to grasp this nettle and to make the changes that are required to protect Antarctica and to protect the planet's future. What a fabulous and uplifting way to end the show. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom, Tony. I am super excited to have had you on the show for our very first episode and even more excited that I get to keep on working with you on the Antarctic Science Foundation Board. So thank you and see you next time. Thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. The view of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out on my website, sophietaylorprice.com or on Instagram or Twitter. Stay tuned for next week's episode. I'm super excited to be interviewing Craig Emerson on his views on the current politics of climate change in Australia. It should provide plenty food for thought. This is your host, Sophie Taylor-Price, signing out. Thanks again for joining for the first ever episode of Voice of Change. Bye for now and see you on the flip side.